0: to work hard to find songs that I'm not familiar with, but he succeeded with that one, and I appreciate him doing it. That was an encouragement this morning. Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians? 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 17 down uh, through chapter 3, verse 5 in just a moment. If you need a Bible, uh, if you don't have one here with you this morning, you'll find one provided for you there in the pew, and you can find this passage on page 957. Well, it's happened to all of us at one point in time or another. I'm sure you've been headed down the highway, headed a certain direction. Uh, Your plan is all in place. You're going full speed ahead. And then the warning signs appear. There's a detour up ahead. Well, what do you do next? Well, perhaps it's only a minor inconvenience. Perhaps you just get on the different path and it may slow you down just a little bit, but it's no big deal, and eventually you get to your intended destination. But there are other detours that can really set you back. You may feel that it costs you time and it, uh, you lose ground that you feel you can't afford to lose. We've all faced detours in our travels, but also in the rest of life as well. We've faced detours in our jobs and in our marriages and in our finances. Uh, Detours that can sometimes be minor, sometimes they're quite major. Even in the life of the church, we face detours. Some of you have been here long enough, you could look back at the history of this church and you could say, oh, there have been seasons when we thought we knew where we were headed and something came up unexpectedly and we faced a detour. Sometimes it's, it's only with the passing of time that we can tell the significance of those detours. Well, how do we deal with detours? You see, Paul faced a detour uh, with the church at Thessalonica. He had planned to devote far more time there in that city. He wanted to spend more time building them up in their faith, but he abruptly had to flee. He suddenly uh, was forced out of town, was forced to leave. So how did he deal with this detour? Well, let us open our, hear- our ears and hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us this morning. If you found your place in Scripture in 1 Thessalonians, uh, starting in chapter 2, verse 17, would you stand if you were able for the reading of God's word? Paul writes, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly. And with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us, for what is our hope, or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, so that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And brothers and sisters, even as we labor, we labor knowing that the grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come to you now. We have heard your word. And we pray that your spirit would move among us, that we would understand your word for us this morning. Lord, would you calm our spirits? Would you help us to set aside all distractions and that we would be able, from the youngest of us to the oldest among us, Lord, that we would hear your word and we would understand what you're saying to us this morning. We ask this for your glory. And in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it was only a matter of days after Paul left town that the word began to spread. It started initially, I'm sure, as whispers uh, behind the backs of Christians. But then uh, the whispers grew louder into a roar of gossip. And the people who were opposed to the Christians began to boldly say to their face, they said, Paul never cared about you. He only wanted your money. He was just like everybody else that comes through here. Those Jewish people who were opposed to the gospel, they scoffed and they said Paul only wanted glory. He just flattered you Gentiles. He just made you think that you could have a new way of life. But don't you see when the going got tough, Paul got going. He abandoned you, you Thessalonian Christians. He didn't really care. I'm sure those were the rumors going around in Thessalonica after Paul left town. And oh, how those lies must have grieved the heart of the apostle. He's already addressed some of these matters in the letter. But this morning, we come to the passage where he answers the big question. Why did you leave, Paul? More than that, why haven't you come back? Did you hear the passion, the emotion in his response in these verses? Sometimes we have these images of the gospel writers and the Apostle Paul, these images in our mind, and we just picture them as being perfect people, and they're just standing aloof. It's the cold, dry, stately Apostle Paul. But did you hear the emotion in his voice in this passage? How much he cared for these believers in Thessalonica? How much it pained him to be away from from them. This is a, a passionate passage, and in many ways it reads like a narrative. You see, there's no commands in this passage for us. There's no commands for the Thessalonian believers. It's simply telling the story. So in that sense, we're going to treat it like we would treat a narrative passage. We're going to read through it. We're going to see the story. We're going to hear what Paul says happened to them. And then at the end, we will attempt to pull out some application for us for how we might deal with detours. But we begin by hearing just how painful this detour was for the Apostle Paul. He begins in verse 17 saying, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, torn away from you, literally saying, We were made orphans. That's a vivid word picture. We were made orphans. Now, in our modern understanding of that word, we think of children who have lost their parents. That's what an orphan is. But in the ancient understanding of the word, it could also refer to those parents who had lost their children. It's a word of great pain, loss, and sorrow. That's the big idea that Paul is pointing out to them here. He's already given these multiple family analogies in uh, this chapter. He's talked about how when he came to Thessalonica, he came in some ways like a mother. And in other ways, he came like a father. And now he's speaking to them as brothers and sisters in Christ. But he's also saying that as your father, as your mother, we have been torn away. We have been made orphans. We were forced to leave you. We saw that back in Acts 17 when we saw the narrative of Paul at Thessalonica. We saw how the Jews who opposed the gospel, they stirred up the city so much so that Paul, uh, through the, the courtesy of a friend named Jason, had to post bail. He had to post security to say that there were going to be no more problems, which essentially meant Paul had to leave town. He had to get out of there because of the great opposition there in the city. He says, we were torn away from you. But actually, it's only been a short time. It's probably just been a few weeks since Paul was pushed out of the city, that now he's writing back, that he's sending Timothy back because of his great love, his longing for them. It's only been a short time. And in fact, they're separated in person, but not in heart. Literally, they're separated in face, but not in heart. Paul says, we want to be among you face to face. We were among you face to face, but now we've been forced to leave We've been made orphans, but our hearts are still with you. Even as Paul had to make his way along the Roman road, finding the next city to go to, his heart was still back in Thessalonica. And then Paul uses uh, some of the strongest, most emphatic language available to him. He says, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire. We greatly desired, we made every effort to return. It's not from lack of trying that Paul hasn't made it back to Thessalonica. Did you see that Paul's longing led to action? He says, we're absent from you in face, but we long to see you face to face. You see, Paul is writing letters, but that's not enough. He's sending his very best, as we'll see. He's sending Timothy, but that's not enough. Paul longs to see them face to face. You know, there are some times that we just have to be together. We've learned uh, among many things the last two years that there's something significant that happens when we gather together that can't be duplicated in any other way. You know from your own family that even as families grow and children move off and have their own families, there's times that you talk on the phone. There may be times that you even write notes or or communicate in other ways, but there are times when you need to be together face to face. In the good times and in the bad, there are some things that simply have to be handled face to face. And Paul longs to see them. Look at verse 18. He says, Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. They had tried. It seems that Paul had actually attempted multiple times to make his way back to Thessalonica. It seems like he thought, well, eventually things will calm down. The trouble will die down. And when it does, I'll go back. But things never calmed down in Thessalonica. The opposition never ceased. So Paul wasn't able to go back. But I want you to hear and what Paul is saying. He's not just saying a nice pastoral thing. He's not saying this because he knows they would expect him to come back. And so he says, well, I wish I could come back. But, you know, the Lord has moved me on. And so I must follow the Lord's will. No, Paul eagerly desires to go back. He's tried. We don't know the details of what happened. But Paul says time and again and again, Satan hindered us. He hindered us. We saw that word hindered last time when we were together for how the Jews hindered the preaching of the gospel to Gentiles. But now Satan himself is hindering the work of Paul. Satan, our ancient foe, the one who truly seeks to work us woe, he is seeking at every hand to keep Paul from going back. He's hindered us. He stopped us, Paul says. And he uses here a military word. A word for the tearing up, the destroying of roads. Armies would go in. If they knew the enemy was coming, they would go in, cut up the road, do everything they could to make the road impassable. Paul says that's what Satan has done. He's gone before us. He's made it where we literally can't make it there. We've tried and we've tried and we haven't been able. Satan has hindered us. Should we be surprised by that? Ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan has been working to keep people away from God, to draw them away from their fellowship with God, to keep people from trusting God. And once they have trusted, to keep them from being productive and fruitful in their Christian life. This is what Satan does. Think about what God has done through Paul in Thessalonica. Because of the work of the Apostle Paul, God has caused people to turn away from idols to serve the living and true God. God is at work in Thessalonica and Satan wants to stop it in any way he can. Incidentally, could that be said of you this morning? Is that your testimony that you've turned from idols to serve the living and true God? That you've repented of your sins, trusted Christ, not trusting In yourself or in your own good works, but that you are trusting only in the work of Christ for your salvation. If that's not true of you this morning, then I would plead with you to repent and trust Christ. Paul, through God, has been very fruitful and productive there in Thessalonica. And Paul has left and he hasn't come back because Satan has hindered him, not because Paul doesn't care about the Thessalonians. In fact, he cares so much. Look at verses 19 and 20. He says, What is our hope, our joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Dare we doubt Paul's love for his people? Do you hear that lavish language? You are our glory and our joy. Notice once again, as I've mentioned to you before, that the return of our Lord, the coming of Christ, the future events on God's calendar permeate the book of First Thessalonians. We know that chapter divisions are artificial. Paul didn't write his letter with chapters and verses. He just wrote the letter. But in the providence of God, the way this book has been organized, every chapter ends with a note pointing toward the return of Christ, toward the Lord's coming. And we know that Paul is telling us that our hope is in Christ. We should have a hope that endures. Our confidence is in Christ. But Paul teaches us something here that we often miss. He says that our hope and our joy in his coming will also come because of the joy that we have in those that the Lord has brought to Christ through us. Because of the fruit that God is bearing in and through us, we will have joy at his coming. Paul is not only looking forward to seeing Christ, although he certainly is looking forward to seeing Christ. He's looking forward to seeing the work that God has done in other believers. The work that he's done in and through the Thessalonians as they come to completion at the time of the Lord's coming. Paul uses language here that they would have understood. He talks about a crown. And it's not the crown that the king would wear. That's a different word. This word is Stephanos. It's the word that we get Stephanie or Stephen from. Those names come. We have at least two Stephanies here this morning, and your name means victor's crown. That's where this word comes from. And Paul uh, is pointing to this image. They would have known that athletes in that day, when they run the race, when they complete the race, they would have won a victor's crown. That would be very simple compared to our standards today. We wouldn't think much of the victor's crowns of those days, but it was very significant. Because it not only recognized the fact that they had completed the race, but it also recognized all the work, all the labor, all the effort that went into the preparation for that race. So Paul says, What is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting when we return? It's the work that God has done through the Thessalonian believers. What joy, what heavenly boasting, the right kind of boasting that we boast in the Lord what God has done in others through us. Praise the Lord for what Paul, uh, what God has done through Paul in the Thessalonian church. So Paul says, no matter what hindrances may come, Paul's absence is not due to a lack of love or a lack of care for the Thessalonian believers. He says, You are our joy and our glory. But don't miss this. That's why the detour is so difficult. That's why it's so painful for Paul, because he loves them so deeply. Do you hear the pain in Paul's voice? Look at chapter three, verse one. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ." He says when we could bear it no longer. We couldn't stand it any longer. We couldn't endure the situation any longer. So I had to send Timothy back to check on you. I had to hear about how you were doing. Paul gave his very best for the church at Thessalonica. He sent Timothy, a son in the ministry, a co-worker, a brother in Christ, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. He sent Timothy... Silas is sent on another mission that we're not told about in great detail. But Paul is left alone to go ahead to Athens. You've seen in Acts 17 Paul's encounter at the Areopagus there in Acts 17 when he's debating all of these philosophers, all these people who opposed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't you think that Paul would have rather had Timothy by his side in Athens Ministry can be lonely when you don't have another pastor, another shepherd alongside of you, encouraging you in the way that only other pastors can. When they know the burden that goes with it. And Paul certainly would have longed for Timothy to be with him. But yet Paul sent Timothy gladly, freely. He sent Timothy back to check on the Thessalonians. Paul sent his very best. Paul was willing to endure the detour for the sake of the church. Well, what was Timothy supposed to do when he made it back to Thessalonica? Look in the middle of verse 2. It says, To establish and exhort you in your faith. To establish and exhort, to strengthen and to encourage, to fortify and to comfort. What did Paul send Timothy back to do in the midst of this detour? He sent him back to be a faithful pastor to minister to the believers there in Thessalonica. Paul divides the work up into two words, to establish and to exhort. Establish simply means to strengthen, to shore up their faith, to make it firm. If you go home this afternoon and you see one of the pillars that's holding up your front porch, if it's sagging, you're probably going to start making some phone calls really soon to shore it up to make it strong. If you see your barn is beginning to fall in one corner, you're going to do what you need to do quickly to shore it up, to make it firm, to make it stand. That's what Timothy is supposed to do for the Thessalonian believers. He's to shore up their faith, to make it firm, to make it stand. Because you see Paul is afraid that the tempter has come, that he successfully tempted the Thessalonian believers that he's tempted and shaken them, and Timothy is to strengthen them to stand. But he's also to encourage them, to exhort them, to comfort them. This is a big theme in this book of 1 Thessalonians. In fact, it's the theme from which we've taken the title of the series to encourage one another with these words. Either explicitly saying the word, the English word encourage, or in idea, it pops up over and over and over again. Timothy is to encourage them, but notice how he's supposed to do it. It doesn't tell Timothy to go back and comfort them by their old way of life. He doesn't go to them and say, guys, I know things are hard. I know that the opposition, the affliction, the persecution is growing strong. So if you need to, just a little bit, go back to your old way of life. Take comfort from those false dead idols just a little bit if you need to. He doesn't tell them to do that. He doesn't say, well, I know that's what they're used to doing. That's the way they've always done it. And so therefore, you need to give them the opportunity to just do a little bit of their old way of life. No, he's to comfort and strengthen them in their faith, in their lifestyle, in their walk with Christ, in their personal devotion to Christ. He's to strengthen them, to encourage them to stand. Why? So that no one would be moved by these afflictions. The beginning of verse three. So that no one would be moved by these trials. You see, the work of the pastor is to establish and exhort you to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. So that when trials come, not if, but when trials come, when afflictions come, that you won't be shaken. Instead, that you will be able to endure the afflictions afflictions of this life while you're waiting on the next life while we wait for God's Son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is what Timothy is supposed to do when he gets back to Thessalonica. Paul reminds the Thessalonians they shouldn't be shaken by these afflictions. Why? Look in the middle of verse 3. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. If you remember back in Acts 17 when Paul went to Thessalonica and he preached the gospel to them, Acts 17 says that Paul explained and proved from the scriptures that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. This has been Paul's message from the beginning. Since I've become a pastor, one of the things that has really settled in on me in the study of God's word is how often the idea of suffering in the Christian life shows up. Maybe in my youth, I just didn't pay attention to that. Maybe no one taught me. I'm not sure. But suffering pops up all over the place. If our Savior suffered, how dare we expect to not suffer in this life? Peter tells us in his letter to us, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We get so surprised when suffering comes in this life. And Paul has already warned the Thessalonian believers. He's told them when he was with them, hey, guys, we're going to suffer. It's going to happen. I promise you, mark my words, we're going to suffer. And now they've seen it for themselves. They've seen it play out right before their very eyes. It's come to pass, just as you know. Look at verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Do you hear that repetition again? Paul began verse 1 by saying, when we could bear it no longer. In verse 5, he again says, when I could bear it no longer, when I couldn't stand it, when I couldn't endure it, I sent to learn about your faith. Because I was afraid that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor would be in vain. You see, Paul's desire to go back to Thessalonica was not pastoral pride. He wasn't saying, you know, I started something good there and I want to go back and see it through. It wasn't about Paul. Paul had a burden for their souls. He knew that Satan was out to get them. He knew that he was in a battle for their very souls. He knew that when he was there, there appeared to be fruit in Thessalonica. It seemed that many had turned from idols to serve the living God. But had the gospel seed taken root it's possible paul knows it's possible that the tempter satan has tempted them away that he's lured them back to their old way of life and if they return back to their old way of life if they return back to the idols that they used to serve then that means they never truly believed in the first place paul knows that this is deadly serious the danger is real but for paul The detour must not destroy their faith. And that's why he's so passionate for the believers in Thessalonica. What can we learn from all of this? Most of you have figured out by now, I'm not the Apostle Paul. And I hope you know that you're not the Thessalonian church. So what are we supposed to do with this letter written by Paul to the Thessalonians? How do we apply it? I see five quick things I want to remind you of. The first thing is to rest assured that detours will come in your personal life, in the life of this church. Detours have come. Detours will come. Secondly, be reminded that detours can be quite difficult. They can be painful. They can bring sorrow because you see the more that our love increases for one another, the more painful they might actually be. Don't forget Paul's love for his people. you hear that all throughout this letter. May we love one another that deeply, even in the midst of detours. The third thing to point out is that detours may be the will of the Lord, or they may be a hindering by Satan. You see, there's other times when Paul writes that he says we weren't able to do what we wanted to do because the Lord hindered us. The Lord told us not to go this way. But here, Paul is able to say with crystal clarity, without reservation, that this is a hindrance from Satan, that Satan has cut up the road and made it impossible for him to get back, that Satan is at work among them. We may not know the difference until sufficient time has passed. We may wonder, is the Lord working or is Satan hindering us? Sometimes we're not sure. But how could we think that things are always going to go smoothly just because we're doing the right thing? We can be faithfully obeying the Lord and trouble comes. Persecution comes. We still fall prey to that sneaky prosperity gospel that we think if everything's going right, then that means God is blessing us. But it could be that the fiery trial has come upon us to test us, just as Jesus promised. Fourth, detours must not paralyze us. They must not paralyze us. Paul had repeatedly tried and failed to go back to the church at Thessalonica. But every time he failed, he didn't stop serving the Lord. He didn't say, well, this difficulty's come up and it's just so discouraging. We might as well shut the church down. I might as well just forget about those Thessalonian believers. No, no matter the detour, no matter the discouragement, Paul faithfully continued. He persisted in doing the will of God. Some of you say, that's what I want to know, preacher. I want to know what is the will of God for my life? Well, keep reading. Paul has much to say in this letter for us about the will of God. We'll come across that in due time. So finally, how do we deal? How do we respond to detours? By being established and exhorted in our faith. By being strengthened and encouraged in our faith. Well, how do we do that? It's not flashy, it's not new, it's not rocket science. It's the ministry of the word. Both privately and publicly, God works through his word. In your own personal life, are you spending time in God's word? Not understanding everything. There's plenty of things that we have to work to figure out. But are you abiding in Christ? By his words abiding in you. Your words abiding back in him through prayer the ministry of the word in your private life. And it's no different when we gather publicly. God is working through his word. And so we gather around the word. We sing the word. We preach the word. We read the word. We pray the word. God has not given us any alternative method. There is no plan B in God's way of doing ministry. When we gather, we gather around the word. So let me ask you, what areas are you wavering in today? What areas are you stumbling? What areas are causing you to question God? What detour is troubling you? Where do you need to be shored up? Where do you need to be strengthened? Where do you need to be encouraged through God's word? We're going to take a moment of silent reflection before we move, before we do anything else. We're going to have a moment in prayer where you can ask the Holy Spirit to make it clear to you for your personal life. Each of us individually, how do we need to be encouraged and, and strengthened through God's word? And then in a moment, I will pray and we will continue to respond to our Lord. Let's bow our hearts before him now.